from the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. Food is scarce. There's no medicine, and hospitals lack basic supplies. Crime is rampant, and the poverty level hovers around 90%. Starving people dig through dumpsters out of desperation to feed their malnourished families. This is real life in Venezuela since the socialists took power under Hugo Chavez and the current leader, Nicolas Maduro. A recent article talked about how the children of the leaders of Venezuela are taking photos, flashing dollar bills, and chartering private jets to Paris. They attend the finest schools and spend incredible amounts of money on lavish vacations and dining. But this is not new. This is the same story with different characters and a different plot line. This is what socialism looks like. The many suffer while those in power parade their wealth. People waiting in line for hours for the possibility of getting just a loaf of bread. A common scene for Venezuelans trying to get essential goods. Many spending most of their days waiting in lines to get basic necessities. Kimberly has two young children. She says it's never been so hard to find food. Kimberly's youngest son, he was taken recently to hospital. What it says here is that he was suffering from diarrhea, asthma, anemia, but also from acute malnutrition. There's a whole list of medicines here also for him. I just asked her and they haven't been able to buy any of them. The last time we did an episode on Venezuela, we talked about the fraudulent election of Nicolas Maduro, his intentions to rewrite the Venezuelan constitution, invalidate the National Assembly, and blame corporations for the severe poverty throughout the country. It was a horrible situation getting worse. But recently, a faint hope has sprung. On January 10th, the Venezuelan National Assembly nullified Maduro as leader and recognized Juan Guaido as interim president. But Maduro refuses to relinquish control. In response, scores of people have taken to the streets to show support, and they've asked the international community to do the same. We want democracy. We want a new president elected by the people of Venezuela. We don't want re-elections from the same government that we had for the past 20 years, Chavez and Nicolás. We want Juan Guaidó to take power of Venezuela. We want the international people to back us up on this. Shortly after, President Trump and Vice President Pence responded in kind. Nicolás Maduro is a dictator with no legitimate claim to power. The National Assembly is the duly elected representative of the people and through their constitutional system and now the interim president uh, Juan Guaido uh, it represents the will of the people and you saw that will literally hundreds of thousands of people in demonstrations all across Venezuela today it was it was truly inspiring 
But getting rid of Maduro is not going to be easy. While Guaido and the Venezuelan people have the backing of the international community, many of the establishment leaders and military brass in Venezuela still back Maduro. So what is the current state of play in Venezuela? What needs to happen in order to ensure Maduro loses and Guaido and the Venezuelan people win? Anna Quintana is a senior policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. She joins us again to explain. Anna, last time you were here, uh, we talked about how Nicolas Maduro uh, had a fraudulent election and immediately after that, he started talking about setting up his own version of Congress, completely invalidating the constitutional Congress that was there and setting up one of only people that agree with him, essentially. Um, there was a, an alleged assassination attempt against him. Uh, it was it was almost chaos. What's happened since then? Yes. So Venezuela essentially has right now two Congresses, right? Two um, national assemblies, parliaments, kind of two legislative branches. One is controlled by the opposition and the other is controlled by, you know, Nicolas Maduro, right? Only one is legitimate because only one was essentially elected uh, by the people. And that's the one that's controlled by the, you know, anti-Maduro political parties. So since then, right, so Maduro held elections in May, presidential elections. They were incredibly fraudulent. I mean, he obviously, the outcome was known. He was, quote unquote, elected president. Um, And the day he was supposed to be inaugurated, to the day he was supposed to take office, January 10th, over 50 countries declared that he was not the legitimate president, right? He was not supposed to assume the office of the presidency. And, uh, you know, so according to Venezuela's constitution, uh, the next the person, the next person in line, the person to assume the office of the presidency is the head of the National Assembly, which is that why now why you have Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela and dozens of countries recognize him. So tell me more about Guaido. Is he someone that we uh, we can trust that we can um, um, uh, coalesce around? Is it someone that we feel can take Venezuela back on the right track? So Guaido is 35 years old, right? Guaido has been in politics since about 2000, I mean, in the early 2000s. Uh, he really came to kind of be known like politically and and kind of in Venezuela because of what was called like in 2007, Hugo Chavez, when he was still alive, tried to stage or he attempted, he, he successfully um, attempted to hold uh, a referendum, right? It was an illegal constitutional met- uh, means. And Venezuelans were rightfully pissed off. I mean, they did. They just said, no, this is illegal. This is wrong. This is um, you're turning this country into a very heavy handed kind of uh, executive with socialist tendencies at the time. And obviously, we know kind of like the full blown dictatorship that it's now become. And so he, along with others, including Leopoldo Lopez, who was uh, that well-known political prisoner who was held in Venezuela in prison for about like three years, um, and others were part of the like anti-Chavez student movement. And if you at the time were an anti-Chavez kind of activist, particularly if you were a student, uh, you were essentially, you know, declaring yourself like you were a target of the government for the rest of your life. You were really just giving up your future. You really had, I mean, you were in danger for the rest of your life. You could have been shot at any moment walking home, getting out of your car. I mean, you were just kind of, you know, sacrificing yourself. And so he's always had an anti-Chavez kind of anti-Maduro perspective when it comes to politics, right, because of how much it's just degraded and destroyed his country. And you look now at kind of 
where that political party, where his movement is in terms of the international recognition that they have, in terms of the relationship that they have with the United States and the legitimacy that they have in particular, kind of. There are some political parties in Venezuela that are obviously kind of, you know, have been a little corrupted and kind of because they've worked too closely with Maduro. He's not. He has not gone in that direction at all. Wow. And so we're seeing this broad coalition of governments. And you mentioned this in your recent piece in the Chicago Tribune um, saying coming coming in line with America, saying this is a, a this is a, a bad situation in Venezuela. It's it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. We're not going to recognize Maduro anymore. Uh, Guaido is our guy, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that Maduro is done and Guaido is in, and the Venezuelans can move back to prosperity. Part of that is sanctions, and yeah. you touch on this a little bit too. But I want to I want to explain to people first of all what sanctions are. Mm-hmm. And why they're important mm-hmm. as a means to an end to, to get a result. So tell me how sanctions are being used in this situation. Sure. So sanctions are a tool meant to change behavior, right? I mean, sanctions and the particular sanctions that are being used against uh, the corrupt, against the regime in Venezuela have been largely, they have been targeted financial sanctions against corrupt government officials, government officials who are complicit and guilty of human rights violations, who are complicit in the destruction of the country's democracy, of its governing institutions, of just and of just corruption. I mean, the government in Venezuela, it's like this criminal syndicate. It's incredibly highly corrupt. So the Trump administration has implemented about over 100 specific targeted sanctions against government officials, meaning that their assets in the United States are seized by the U.S. authorities, that they can no longer travel to America. And that they no longer and that they also are listed as somebody that U.S. um, entities cannot engage in commercial transactions with. Right. And that's significant because, like, if you are a corrupt Venezuelan government official, your money and your savings are not in the boulevard. I mean, the current local currency is not a stable currency. It's it's I mean, the economy there has been decimated. Right. You have saved you've put all your money in the U.S. financial system. The vice president, for example, the former vice president of Venezuela had over five hundred million dollars of his in narcotics related assets seized when he was designated as a drug trafficking kingpin by the Trump administration. And I mean, that's huge. Right. Because now it's a situation where like and also now the United States has implemented oil sanctions. Right. So like it's it's great because it's now. Maduro is looking at his inner circle and his inner circle essentially has all been sanctioned by the United States, right? Their freedom of movement is limited. And so they are all, there's a higher likelihood that these guys are going to turn against him. Shifting gears here. We know that Maduro has used the military to pretty much implement what he's wanted. He is, Mm -hmm. he's used them, um, in many different ways. Uh, you touched on that last time. Um, so they're pretty much, Running the show. And now um, in recent articles, we're talking about the U.S. is now working uh, to send aid to the impoverished, the malnourished uh, Venezuelan children, citizens there. Um, Guaido and the U.S. are trying to, what they say, sow divisions within the Venezuelan armed forces. What do you think? Is this an effective strategy to loosen Maduro's grip? Yeah. Oh, my God. Completely. Yeah. I mean, the thing is with the military is that there is no cohesion within the military. Right. So the military is made up of essentially five branches. Right. There's five service arms of the military. Um, The ones to really look out for in terms of like what are they doing? What? Because they're incredibly powerful and they've always been used as tools of the state, specifically the National Guard, because the National Guard in Venezuela has 
domestic law enforcement responsibilities and authorities. So it's not just like in the United States where they just, you know, where it's they're used as a reservist force. They are the domestic law enforcement apparatus of the government. And the, the, the National Guard, for example, is in charge of the national oil company, PDVSA. Uh, the United States government just implemented oil sanctions against the Venezuelan government. So, I mean, that is going to sow massive divisions there because the corrupt generals are no longer going to be allowed to siphon off of siphon money off off of, you know, that that oil company. And also the National Guard is in charge of the country's food distribution systems. So, I mean, again, if you were like the upper brass, you are incredibly corrupt. You're incredibly I mean, you just have been implicated. There's just much more allegations of corruption kind of at the top. But the folks at the bottom they're suffering from this humanitarian crisis as well. Mm. And you're seeing a lot more kind of indications that they are no longer in support of the government. I mean, over the weekend, you've seen you're seeing more videos like every time that there's anti-Maduro demonstrations, you see pictures and videos of police, of Venezuelan police actually protecting protesters. You never saw that before. They're disobeying the regime's orders. Um, So, I mean, the, the tides are changing here. Straightforward is the Trump administration working behind the scenes to overthrow Maduro. They're not doing this behind the scenes. They're being very public about it. And that's the best thing. I mean, I think it's very helpful when you have moral clarity and you have, particularly in your foreign policy, when you have a government that says, we want to see you go because you are no longer the democratically elected leader. You are known for drug trafficking. You've turned your country into a drug trafficking hub. There's a body count associated with your criminality. And you've created Latin America's worst refugee crisis. You know, there are leaders who've been forced out of office for less. And no, I think it's incredibly helpful. And I think, you know, the people need to really look at one, how successful their Venezuela policy has been thus far. Two, the fact that it's not just a unilateral U.S. effort. This is a multilateral, like regional and international effort. It's one of the rare occasions where U.S. foreign policy objectives are actually met through multilateralism and kind of like working with international partners. And also, I think you look at the people who specifically are working on Venezuela policy, like they just recently named a Venezuela envoy, right? Elliot Abrams. For people who follow Latin America, particularly from the left, they're like, well, why are they going to appoint this Cold War warrior who was so helpful in kind of overthrowing the the communist regimes of Central America? Specifically because of that, because he overthrew freaking communist regimes from Central America in the freaking 80s. Like, that is why you appoint Elliot Abrams. You don't appoint him because he's a negotiator. He's the freaking undertaker. He's he's a rock star. And I, I think if you're like a low ranking like Venezuelan soldier and you like you look at the United States, you're like, all right, we got Trump. We got they got Elliot Abrams. They got Bolton. They got Pence. They got all these guys. I got Maduro and these other, you know, rinky dinky generals like I'm on the wrong side of this equation here. And and continuing with that, I want to just push a little bit to make sure that we have total clarity on this. We're not concerned that America is usurping the will of the Venezuelan people. No, no. This is this is we're just assisting that voice. Well, that, that's exactly it. I mean, if you look at the videos of Venezuela, like there are literally millions of people on the streets wanting a change. They want to see Maduro gone. They're literally risking their lives. And I mean, no, this is this is the United States kind of playing catch up right now, right? I mean, they've wanted to see him gone for such a long time. And now you finally have the domestic pressure and kind of you have the domestic political guidance because you finally have somebody in the opposition in a leadership role who can actually help shepherd the country through this change. And I think it's it's that's that's a critical component. It's no secret that things here in Washington are uh in conflict right now between the left and the right. 
What are both sides of the aisle saying about this year? Are we is this something where we're actually united on Democrats and Republicans, left and right? What what is what is your sense for that? This is a really it's one of the greatest bipartisan issues, right? I mean, so you have a lot of the like the rational Democrats, you know, they get it. They're on board with it. You got Pelosi on board with kind of, you know, with this positive action. You have former Obama administration officials who are on board with what the Trump administration is doing. There's a lot of just, I mean, even think tanks who are traditionally on the left that we would not necessarily work with, like we're coordinating with them and cooperating with them in ways that we've never done before. Where you are seeing a problem is largely with the freshman Democrats that are coming in. Particularly, you know, you have like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's literally parroting um, like Russia today and like Nick, like Maduro regime propaganda, calling it a U.S.-led coup. And then also, what's her name? Elon Oman. Um, I mean, you have these freshman Democrats who have no concept or idea. I mean, they've just let their hatred of both the Trump administration and of the United States cloud their judgment on this. OK, let's look into the crystal ball here. What becomes of all this? Is Maduro is is his um, is his time over, or can he survive uh, this? Um, does Guaido have a chance here? What 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 is your sense? I think all, all everything that you just said right now is possible. That's the issue, right? Everything right now is possible, and nothing is possible at the same time. Like that's the thing. This is such a rapidly evolving situation, but at the same time, it's also so slow moving. I think what's going to determine things is. Venezuela now has very little income coming in. The Maduro regime has very little income coming in because of the oil sanctions. That's going to play a huge role. That means that Cuba has little income coming in because the Cuban government it relies on Venezuela for money. That means the Venezuela the regime can no longer pay off the Russians. That means their options are just that much more limited. So now does it become a situation where they're like, you know what, let's just leave. We've ransacked and bankrupted this country. Let's just leave. Let's go to Cuba, spend the rest of our time there. Who knows? Um, I think there's just a lot that can happen. I mean, does Maduro figure out a way of finding Guaido and killing him? If that happens, I mean, God bless him, because then the response, the international community response is going to be. I mean, I figure Sweden will want to invade. Right. Because, I mean, he is a, he's an internationally recognized head of state. Right. And if he were to be killed, that would be that's that's a that's a significant crime and a significant escalation. So, I mean, I don't know. Anything can really happen. But I think. We're living in a situation right now where Maduro has never been as vulnerable as he's ever. This is the most vulnerable he's ever been in his entire life. We're literally seeing history. Ha- like I, people just need to continue staying, like following this, for un- until until there's a decisive end. Anna, you are a rock star. Thank you so much for coming in today. Appreciate now, thanks it. for doing this. It's fun. And that's it for this week's episode of Heritage Explains. Thank you so much for listening. Do us a favor and head to our social media sites and help promote the podcast by sharing with your friends and family. Subscribe, like, all that good stuff. Michelle will be on next week with a new episode. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by Thalia Rampersad. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101 a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to.